The doctors, due to the severity of the burns, 65% of my body is covered in burns, burn-related scarring, told me that I would never be competitive in sports again. And what they didn't know, that was the message I really needed to hear. Like, there's nothing in life that gets me more fired up than somebody telling me I can't do something. Because once you tell me that, I'm going to spend every waking breath trying to prove you wrong. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh and Mara May and we're coming from the front of my house. It is a beautiful day and we need to get some sun. We're here to introduce our next guest on the Ultra Habits podcast and it is Shay Eskew, the unbelievable man. He's the definition of the corporate athlete. We came across each other on LinkedIn. We have a mutual appreciation for the endurance world. He is a Ironman and not just an Ironman. He has done 50 odd plus events across the world and he has performed at an elite level. Now, what makes Shay's story amazing is that when he was eight years old, it was an incredible accident in the neighborhood where he got a light he got set on fire and he ended up getting covered in burns over 65 percent of his body was covered in burns folks and it was an arduous journey over the years it's been over 30 odd surgeries he's had to reconstruct his face his body his ears and everything and this man is truly amazing what he has done in his life from not only corporate in terms of his corporate success but his athletic success, his family success, and his philosophy and the way that he views life is truly, truly remarkable. He's written a book called What the Fire Ignited. It's short, it's punchy, it's inspirational, it's motivational, it's everything above that you would imagine that would come from a man that has been through such trials and tribulations to come out on the other side of success. He is a remarkable man. We really enjoyed our time together. We had a really good conversation about life and about how he approaches things and what the fire ignited. So guys, I really hope you join us on the next episode and that you really enjoy this episode. And as always, we are super, super keen for your feedback. Anyways, guys, take care. Have a wonderful weekend. Peace out. Uh, Shay, it's great to connect with you on the Ultra Habits Podcast. I feel like I've gotten to know you over the last few days. I actually just finished your book yesterday so everything is really fresh and usually on this show we dive into the nuggets or what we feel to be the lessons and teachings we don't necessarily go into life stories but I think with your story it's very important to set context to how and why you became the man you are today so can you take us back to when you were eight years old in that day um, with the bees and, and it's such an unusual and uh, impactful story. Let's start there, man. Yeah, absolutely. So it was August 4th, 1982. I was eight and my mom had asked me to warn my neighbors about an aggressive yellow jacket's nest that the previous day it swarmed my entire bicycle. As I was heading over there, my seven-year-old friend joined me. So we walked across the street. We knocked on the front door. The dad wasn't home, but the 15-year-old daughter was. And as we proceeded to tell her about the yellow jackets covering my bike, she asked us to show her the nest because she wanted to get rid of them. As we walked to the nest, we point to it in the ground. She goes, will you guys help me get rid of it? And I preface this, RJ, by saying I have the most conservative parents you've ever met. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't cuss. I wasn't allowed to go to firework shows. I couldn't go to spend night parties. Like they took every precaution imaginable to safeguard me against anything happening. And so the girl walks up, she strikes a match, throws it down at the hole in the ground. Nothing happens, right? We know a match of itself won't do anything. And as we're standing about 15 feet away, we're watching the yellow jackets fly in and out of the nest. Without saying a word, she picks up a gas can of gasoline, pitches it, hits me on the right side of my face, my shoulder, hits my buddy on the left side of his face and shoulder, 
hits that spark of a match. And within an instant, we're engulfed in flames. Luckily, I had the wherewithal to stop, drop, and roll. My buddy stood there screaming. So once I noticed he was still on fire, I ran back across the street, grabbed a water hose, and put him out. And that's kind of what set me on this 39-year tra trajectory. I'm 47 now. So I'm close to 40 surgeries into this. Uh, it's been a long road. I spent the first three months in the hospital. My right ear had to be amputated to gangrene. My right ear was physically melted to my body. So it'd take three years for me to lift my arm over my head. I had to learn how to write left-handed to finish the third grade. I had to learn how to do everything left-handed. Brush my teeth, brush my hair, button your shirts, right? Everything. Because I couldn't use my right arm. And at the same time, the doctors, due to the severity of the burns, 65% of my body is covered in burns, burn-related scarring, told me that I would never be competitive in sports again. And what they didn't know, that was the message I really needed to hear. Like, there's nothing in life that gets me more fired up than somebody telling me I can't do something. Because once you tell me that, I'm going to spend every waking breath trying to prove you wrong. And that's what I've done. And so that has been what set me down this path that I'm on. And I'm very fortunate for having gone through this. Yeah, and it's an amazing story. And I think, you know, we'll, your, your sense of leveraging, uh, you know, the, the, the incident and the chaos and everything that ensued to make yourself stronger comes through the book. The, the whole book it's 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 the theme and the message there and you exemplify that more so than really anyone I've met the ability to turn what is perceived as a weakness into a strength and we'll talk a little bit more about how you've done that throughout the uh the conversation so you now are covered in burns you are eight years old and you your family finds out you're not insured and so by God's grace, you end up at Shriners. One of the things, and I want you to talk about the Shriners journey, because I think one of the interesting things there was you learned gratitude in a weird way, because you started to look around you and see other people that had it a lot worse than you. What were some of the key lessons and, and I suppose growth for you in that Shriners journey? Because I think being in that kind of environment with that level of trauma around you at such a young age, you would have learned and grown up a lot there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so when we got burned, we found out we had no insurance. $2 million estimated bill. We were probably low class, maybe, yeah, definitely higher low income, you know, blue collar family just trying to get by. So the Shriners relocated my mother and I from Atlanta to Cincinnati, 500 miles apart. And so for the next three months, my mom stayed in housing provided by the Shriners. My dad drove up on the weekends because he still had to work, right? We needed the income. And so what you have to keep in mind is for three months, I didn't see anybody I knew. No family, no friends, just my mom. But one of the things I took solace in is I looked around that ICU room, you see all these other kids in the same, if not worse, predicament, right? They've all been severely burned. We're all scared together. Whereas in a normal hospital setting, you would never have this many burn patients all within one room. And so as you sit there and reflect on what your life is going to be, you're constantly reminded it could be worse. You know, you look at the kid next to you say, oh my gosh, hey, I still have all my fingers. I've got my toes. I've got my nose. You know, I saw one guy, he's two beds over. He was burned 90% of his body. No fingers, no nose, no eyelids. They were burned off. And you say, wow, you know, I'm really lucky. You know, I'll never forget. We had a, probably, a, I think she was five-year-old walking around the rooms and her face had been melted to her chest. A lighter blew up in her face. I never remember hearing her complaining. Every time I saw her, she was smiling and carrying on. And you just keep telling yourself, how could I dare complain if somebody like this 
always has a smile on your face, right? And I think that's kind of what set me down this path is that no matter how bad my situation is, it doesn't compare to what somebody else is going through. And so life is always about a matter of perspective. You know, RJ, I have five kids, as you know, and I'm going to tell you, we definitely have our breaking point at times. And then I remind myself, how many people that couldn't have kids or how many people that have lost a kid would give anything to have five bratty kids? Like they would love to have their kids say, I'm not eating my dinner. And so that's kind of one of the things that I remind myself over and over again when I'm faced with an obstacle. Is this really that big of a deal? Is my worst case scenario, maybe somebody else's best day scenario? It's interesting. I was just reading a story a couple days ago about young parents that lost their toddler. And one of the things that really used to irritate them was the toddler would always go out the back door and slam the door. And now they just slam the door just to hear that sound to, to remember him. Just so sad, right? Like, yeah. It is, you know, and it's one of those things. Uh, so when I got burned, you know, we didn't get pain medication. We didn't, we weren't put in induced comas. The strongest thing we ever got was extra strength Tylenol. And it's interesting because now, you know, people are put in induced comas, they're heavy sedated. And people are like, man, I feel so bad for you guys. I can't imagine them cutting off part of your ear while you're awake with a pair of scissors. I can't imagine going through debris not giving any pain medication. But if you look at where I'm at now, like I have an extremely high pain threshold. The sports that I excelled in was because of that ability to withstand a lot of pain and discomfort. And then you look at kids now, they're addicted to narcotics because of the pain medications they receive in the hospital. You know, that's one of the big things they're fighting now for burn survivors is the addiction to pain medications because they're constantly in so much pain. Mm -hmm. And so when you're not giving those kind of things, you just adapt and you learn that pain, a lot of it's mental, right? It becomes your new normal. You know, I tell everybody for the last 39 years, I can't think of a single day that I've woken up not in pain. My goal is to wake up just in a little bit less pain than I was in the day before. And that's a good day. And you know, it's going to pass. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's something that's quite interesting in terms of your story. And I want to get to uh, around your level to be in the pain cave, definitely within the Ironman journey. So let, let's talk about you get out of the hospital. There was something that you said in your book. You said others will perceive you the way that you perceive yourself. And you didn't want to be the burn survivor. You didn't want to shape your identity around that and that really ties into insecurities and i think our listeners will get a lot out from you because of your journey and having to deal with insecurity and feeling really really like the spotlight was on you at such a young tender age to feel that level of insecurity can we talk a little bit about that and how you dealt with that when you came out of the hospital and just your philosophical perspective? Yeah, you know, it was, it was hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, when I left the burn unit, you know, they cautioned us about going back to school because we were basically isolated in a bubble. Everybody in that hospital looked like us. We all had thick scars, you know, body parts missing, so no, you didn't stick out. You were normal with all your scars. But once you get back into society, you realize nobody else looks like you. I can honestly tell you only a handful of times in 39 years have I ran across another burn survivor face to face. And so they cautioned us about going back to school and even homeschooling for a year. My parents sent me back to school two weeks later. Every day, my mom would pick me up at lunch take me home, change all my dressings, give me a whirlpool bath, put the ointments back on, take me back to school. And I can tell you, and I still remember it to this day, when I would walk down that hallway of school, we're so used to hearing all the kids chattering, the hustle, the bustle, complete silence. 
and you could feel the eyes looking at you, right? And then as you start to make your way down the hallway, you could start to hear whispers. You knew they were talking about you. And then if any of you remember back in 1982 and 1983, Wes Craven released his film Nightmare on Elm Street. And I could even hear a few kids say, hey, look, there's Freddy Krueger. And when I looked in the mirror, that's what I saw. I saw Freddy Krueger looking back at me. I didn't see an eight-year-old kid that happened to be, you know, a burn survivor, wrong place, wrong time. I saw a monster. And it was so bad that for years, I never looked at the right side of my face because I didn't want to be reminded of that horrible monster. And I remember crying myself to sleep at night, begging, praying for God to take away the scars. Like what could an eight-year-old have done to justify this, right? Because that's what we think is things are a punishment. And the more I started praying about it and thinking about it, the more I realized, you know what? This is not punishment. It was simply an accident. And it's going to be something I have to live with the rest of my life. So I can either play the victim card and expect everybody to feel sorry for me, or I can make the most of a bad situation and have fun with it. And so I'll never forget that empowering moment going back to school. And those same kids, when I would hear them say, hey, Freddy Krueger, I would turn back to them and say, yes, I'll see you in your dreams tonight. <laughs> and it put it into it real quick, right? And that's what I learned is that once I embrace these scars, I own this. You can't break me down. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to get mentally tough at an early age. I had to. It was a survival mechanism. People always come up, hey, where's your ear? You're like, what are you talking about? They said, you don't have a right ear. I said, yes, I do. They said, no, you don't. I was like, and I'd reach up. I was like, oh, crap. Where is it? Can you help me find it? I've had kids looking for it in a swimming pool. They were convinced it was sitting on the drain. And that's what life's about, right? Like once we're comfortable in our skin, we broadcast to everybody, look, I'm confident. I'm okay being short, tall, big, thin, whatever, you know? And we broadcast that to everybody and strength resonates and people are jealous of that. They wish that they had that same level of confidence about their insecurities. It's not an easy process, but mm -hmm. once you just say, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm going down this path. I'm not turning back. Life looks completely different, right? I would say that's one of your superpowers, Jay. I yeah, think that yeah. is one of the most admirable qualities. And it wasn't bestowed on you. You, you. you got it under a baptism of fire, literally. That gift of being able to be who you are is take the piss out of yourself, as they say in Australia. And you take that ammunition away from everyone around you. Yeah, and, and that's what you realized these things in life that people perceive as a, a setback, you want to say, name one thing in life I've ever missed out on because of being burned. Name one thing. I've got five amazing kids, a beautiful wife of 17 years, successful career. I've achieved very high levels in athletics. Name one thing I've ever missed out on. Did I have to work three times as hard as everybody else just to be average? Hell yeah, I did but it meant 10 times as much because I had to work so hard for it. Mm. And that's one of those life lessons. Like you wish you could teach every kid the things that mean something to you are the things that you suffered and sacrificed to get. It was never the things that people gave to you. Mm. None of us sit around the campfire and have a beer and say, Hey, remember when that just fell into my lap and I didn't do anything. <laughs> Right? We're telling the war stories. We walked up the hill barefoot yeah. in the snow yeah. both ways. You know, that's the stuff that we love. So why do we shy away or play the victim card the moment something bad happens? If anything, mm -hmm. we should be excited and say, oh, my God, when I get through this, imagine how freaking amazing I'm going to be. I'm going to have a new tool in my tool belt to overcome the next obstacle as a result of this. I think that takes a lot of wisdom in 
proven illustrative examples to yourself and not enough people embark on the harder way in a way that enables them to really get that wisdom that you can't see it at the time, but there's a trust that following that harder process is going to yield gold, right? But most people don't have that innate understanding because they haven't proven that to themselves yet. And you, you did, right? Yeah. You did. And I think that that's a great point you're hitting on It's when you have a basis for saying, look, I know what real suffering looks like. I've been through real hell, literally. And so I'm not scared of it. I've been there. You know, I've experienced the lowest of lows. And I know no matter how bad it gets, I'm always going to survive. And that's what most people don't know. They don't have that confidence that, look, when everything is just crashing around me, I'll still be okay. Mm. I may not be as good as I was, but I'm always going to be okay. And that's one of the things as a family unit that's held us together. Like we've lost our house in foreclosure, barely paying my bills, but we didn't panic because we said, no matter what, we will always get through it. We will do whatever it takes to get through this. And when you truly know that life's pretty easy, but what happens is most people don't, and so they change who they are or how they do things. And then they expose themselves to failure, right? But if you're programmed and wired to say, look, I will always survive. I will always get across the finish line. Life's pretty easy. Hmm. Yeah, so true. So I'm going to move towards when you are an adult. Now, for those that haven't read your book, I, I, I definitely recommend it because this whole piece where you are growing up, you're, you're going through your transformation, you're wrestling bears and crazy shit like that. I just couldn't believe that. And you get to this point where you're working, you know, you're doing the old arms and legs and chest routine because you want to be buff for the chicks or whatever. And you meet this Henry force. And I think we all have that Henry force in our life for those of us that have embarked on a transformation. And there was a, there was a, a statement you made in your book around taking up investment from others. Can you unpack that relationship with Henry and why it was so pivotal? And I suppose what you took out of that. Absolutely. So I believe God places people in our life at critical moments. Yeah, that has a profound impact on who we're going to become. The key is, are we open enough to explore where that new path is? Mm. Many of us are so convinced we have to go down the certain path. We're not going to deviate, right? Mm. But Henry, I'll never forget it. Uh, we're in the locker room changing to go work out. I was working a big high rise in Atlanta. I was 33 I was 40 pounds heavier than what I am. Not all muscle, but I had the guns, right? It's all about the gun show. Looking good in the t-shirt, big chest, big biceps. And I was just waiting for somebody to ask me how much I could bench press. <laughs> like anybody cared, right? Like anybody ever cared. But Henry, he's a 65-year-old man, barrel-chested, had a flat top, military look. Came up to me and says, hey, tough guy. I said, you talking to me? He goes, yeah, I'm talking to you. He goes, why don't you come to my little boot camp class? Just me and a bunch of ladies doing a bunch of exercises you did in grade school. Shouldn't be anything for a guy like you with all your muscles. Like he knew exactly which buttons to press, right? So immediately I'm like, you don't know who you're messing with. <laughs> I'm going to annihilate you. <laughs> so of course I go into this room and true to form, it's Henry and all women. 10 minutes, I'm in tears because we're doing all core. Like core is not essential for building big chest and big arms. No. We're doing leg raises, planks. I mean, you name it. So literally the last 10 minutes, he goes, all right, four count push-ups. I'm like, here we go. I'm going to kill this guy. He has no idea what he's unleashed. He drops down beside me and he starts yelling out, one, two, three, one, one, two, three, two. I can't keep up with him. And he sees me and he goes, Eskew, ponytails is kicking your butt. You better pick it up, boy. 
And I said, what's the only appropriate response? Yes, sir. <laughs> and I went home to my wife and I said, I just got embarrassed by a 65-year-old man. What I didn't know then, but what I found out the next day was this was no ordinary 65-year-old man. He was one of the original 13 Ironman finishers from 1978. He was a Marine drill sergeant. He had done the Ironman again at 62, was running 10 miles a day. But having Henry say that to me was the same as those doctors telling me, you'll never play sports again. I told my wife, I said, I'm not going to have this. I'm going to show him what he's unleashed. In the next two months, I lost 25 pounds, was back into fighting shape. Henry and I became pretty close, and we started talking about the uncertainties of life. And in the same time period, he got diagnosed stage four pancreatic cancer, was given a three-month diagnosis to live. And he said, Shay, this is hard. I got to be honest. I've done everything the good book tells us to do, served my country, faithful husband for 50 years. I've got three children. And I said, Henry, listen, I, I was eight. What could an eight-year-old possibly have done, right? To justify this kind of, you know, rebuilding process. And I said, but what I do know is life looks completely different now. And I wish everybody could taste what I've seen because if they did, they would never waste one single minute of a single day. And so right before we lost Henry, we said, a group of us, that we would do the next big triathlon in his honor. And so when he passed away, we had four months to get ready for a half Ironman, which was a 1.2-mile swim, 56-mile bike, and then a half marathon. Didn't own a bike. Never had swam, hadn't ran since high school. Bought a $500 bike off Craigslist. Uh, it's a road bike, started swimming in a lap pool, and then just started running based on what I thought I needed to do. Uh, we did the race, had a great race. I think I finished top 25%. Afterwards that night, we're all sitting around having a few beers and somebody says, let's do the same course twice, five months from now, who's in? So I went home and signed up that night, right? Nobody else did, but I did. Well, fast forward five months later. Sign up and worry about it later, right? That's the way yeah, it goes. Yeah, figure it out, right? Yeah. And so five months later, I show up for the race. I run into Henry's daughter the day before the race, and she said, Shay, daddy's going to be watching you. I said, oh, I know. She goes, no, you know this is the one-year anniversary of him passing away completely slipped my mind like i had signed up just because i felt led to do wow. it right wow and again it set me on that journey once i finished had an amazing race i finished the first iron man 10 and a half hours not even knowing what i was doing and haven't turned back since and that's what i keep like and so when i meet people in life i always kind of say like what are they trying to bring to my life that's missing right now what can i learn from these people and that's how my book came out you know i, I met a guy for dinner jack daly and after we had a two-hour dinner he said shay i've got one question for you and if you knew this guy you'd understand like he's pretty intense 95 marathons all seven continents he was a 70 year old man something about old men just pushing my buttons i guess mm -hmm. it's a daddy thing yeah and he yeah, said yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, Jay, when are you writing your damn book? And I said, Jack, man, I don't have time to do that. I'm working full time. I got five kids. I'm training 15, 18 hours a week. And he goes, those are excuses. I've written three bestsellers. I travel as much as you. Here's what's going to happen. When I leave this dinner, I'm going to introduce you to my publisher. Eight months later, you're going to have a bestseller. The rest is up to you. Make it happen. Called my wife on the way home from the dinner. I said, guess what? I'm writing my book. Here's what it's going to cost. And she was like, look, if you said it can happen, I trust you. Bam, eight months later, book's done, bestseller, and things took off. And so, our job, and that's just kind of the way I live life. It's you seize the moment. You don't sit here and think of all the reasons why you can't. Sit here and think of all the reasons why you can, right? 
and think about if I truly want to live an extraordinary life, I got to take a different path. If I want to live like 1% of the world, I got to be willing to do what 99% of the people in the world are never willing to do. Mm-hmm. And if you keep reminding yourself that when you're facing challenges, say, look, if 99% of the people in the world say, this is crazy, I need to quit. You know, you're on the right path. Mm-hmm. Keep going. That's a, it's like contrary to the crowd, right? You're using the crowd as a baseline and you're moving the opposite direction, right? It is, you know, and oh, it's really like, yeah. you know, my wife is kind of my true north. And I said, look, babe, your job's to keep me in line because if you leave me alone, I can go to extremes. I have a very compulsive, addictive personality. But so many times, you know, when I had these crazy ideas, she goes, hey, look, I think you need to go for it. Yeah. And that's what you need. You need somebody in your corner to affirm, hey, look, I love you no matter what. Failure is not an option. I got your back. Let's do this. At the same time, a man like you, and I can definitely appreciate this, you, you want a partner too. And I'm, I know that you have this with Brooke that doesn't drink your Kool-Aid as well, right? <laughs> that would be trouble. That would be trouble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because uh, I mean, there's, there are those moments that you're like, God, why are you not on board with this? Mm. And then again, I stop and reflect, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? Mm-hmm. And 99% of the time she's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to, I want to talk about all your racing culminates in this bizarre synchronous synchronicity in terms of this inspire Kona, you got like Cheryl Crow and Nashville stars helping support you. Can you talk about that? Your, your kind of focus on Kona and how that, how that all came together. Because in the book, it seemed like you actually weren't really thinking about doing it, but it kind of all just happened, right? It is. And again, it's just kind of that underlying theme that people enter your life for a reason. Yeah. Um, 2010, I did an Ironman finished second mage group. And I was like, man, this is my sport. I'm going to crush it. So I signed up for the world's hardest Ironman six months later, which was Ironman St. George in its original course layout. Everything that could have went wrong, went wrong, right? Migraines all week, uh, lost nutrition bottles, was urinating blood before I started the marathon. So I didn't qualify for Kona, you know, based on my finish time. And I told my wife, I said, you know, Maybe Kona just isn't in the cards for next year. I'm not going to sweat it. And then there was another race that happened that everything that could have went wrong went wrong. And then finally, a friend of mine emailed me. She said, Shay, Iron Man is doing this contest called Kona Inspired. First time they've ever done it. They're looking for the six most inspiring stories. Nationwide vote. If you're selected, you go compete in Kona. She said, this is you. This has your name all over it. And when I read the contest, I went to my wife and said, babe, here's what I want to do, but I need your blessing. Because if I enter the contest, I'm going to win it. I know it. I'm going to do everything. That's the only option. I said, Are you, can you put up with me to get through this? And she said, Yes. And during this contest, things kind of materialized. My son happened to be on a T-ball team where we had Cheryl Crow, Brad Paisley, Scott Hamilton, you know, Olympic gold medalist, figure skater, all these world-renowned celebrities on my team. And I didn't want to tell them I was doing the contest because I have trouble asking for help. And then I'm at a healthcare conference and I get a text from Cheryl Crow that says, Shay, this is Cheryl Crow. I heard about Kona inspired. We're getting you to Kona. I'm going to have my social media director contact you. We're going to make it happen. And then Brad Paisley helped and the community rallied around me. You know, there were so many people I've never met said, look, we're going to help you get the votes. We're going to share your story. You know, fast forward 10 months later, there I am at the Ironman starting line. And RJ, what's so interesting, like if you think about it, so I was one of the featured athletes from the NBC broadcast of it. 
Had I qualified for Kona on my own accord based on my finish time, nobody would have heard my story. Mm. I would have been one of 2,500 racers out there. Yeah. But because of the way I qualified, yeah. thousands, if not millions of people heard my story. And again, I couldn't help but feel like this was a divine intervention and a, and a way to impact people differently. And to this day, people still reach out and say, hey, thank you for sharing your story. I was battling addiction. I was going through a divorce. I lost a loved one. You name it, right? Like we're all battling something. And I think we all just need that reassurance. We're going to get through it. And that's why I keep saying that my plan isn't always the best plan. And I have to be open to when it's not and go down those alternate paths when they present themselves. And every time that's happened, the way it materializes is so amazing. I could have never made it up, right? I couldn't dream up the way Kona happened. And it far exceeded the experience I would have got had I qualified under my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, when you, you, you throughout the, your, your book, you tend to look at things through the faith lens, which is very interesting because you start to see how, yes, these things there was some divine play here or there was some play at work that had things gone the way that you planned would never have eventuated the way it did. Right. Right. Let's, let's talk about your relationship with Brooke and your five kids. Now, this is something I like to talk to with a lot of our guests because like myself and I selfishly like to talk about this topic, I find my pursuit of the insane can sometimes really push the family to the edge. And I need to be very careful. Um, You know, when you're training and a lot of people may not realize, you know, for professional athletes, it's all well and good. They can sleep during the day. They can do double sessions for people like us. We're running businesses. We have many moving parts. We have kids and to train to this level, there's a lot of fatigue, but life doesn't stop. So can you talk about how you've managed your drive in relation to maintaining a successful marriage and being a present father? Because you know, as well as I do, those long runs, those long Saturday, Sunday sessions, you come back, you're not, when they compound week on week, you're, you're probably not optimally performing as a parent or a husband. So how did you manage that whole piece? And what's your you know, view on, on it? You know, it's interesting. So the first thing I did, and I had received advice from the book, Be Iron Fit, written by Don Fink. And he laid out a 30-week plan. He said, step one, share this plan with a significant other. And say, what about this scares you? And that was key. And so my wife, when we went through it, I said, look, at its peak, here's what we're looking at. I said, what do you need? Because... Sadly, it's a very selfish sport at times, it right? Is. It is, yeah. And she goes, look, number one, you need to do your training early in the morning. I don't want you cutting out from our family time at night to go train. Mm-hmm. And then most, uh, secondly, I need two days breakfast in bed. That's the <laughs> so for 13 years, you know, two days breakfast in bed. Um, and so one of the things that we try to do is the races, make it a family event, pick some really cool destinations. You know, I've raced in 13 different countries, five continents. We've seen some pretty amazing stuff and getting to experience races through that lens. Like I took my kids to Kona, all of them. They were there at the finish line. We experienced, you know, everything Kona had to offer. I took my kids to Edinburgh, Scotland. Like, how cool is it to see your kids on the course in Edinburgh? And the thing, like, I've got a poster taped up in my pain cave, which is where I do all my training. My 11-year-old wrote this, and it says, have you been to Europe? I have. I got to cheer my dad on as he was doing the Ironman. He was sweating so hard and working really hard, and he came by and gave us all high fives. Those are the memories that will be cemented in your kid's brain. Right. Like I've always tried to be the parent that doesn't say do this. I show them. Yeah. I want them to emulate based on what they've seen. 
Um, but with that, I try to be very careful not to put my racing objectives above theirs. And so all five of my kids are in travel soccer. As you can imagine, that's a challenge. And so I map out, all right, where are we this weekend? What does my training need to be so that we can be there at all the meets? Um, I take my bike trainer and my bike into hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. So I've ridden 100-mile rides inside a hotel room. Mm -hmm. You know, I've ran 18 and 20 miles on treadmills and hotels. So you just figure out a way to make it. And then you also realize there's other times you just can't get the training in. Mm -hmm. And so one of the best advice I received from a pro triathlete was you're better off being 80% fit and 100% family happy than a hundred percent fit and 80% family happy. Right. Um, and yeah. also one of the big things, like I, I'm sure like you, like I track all my workouts and it measures training stress score, the impact on your body from the training. And so I know going into the big races because the workout intensity is so much, I get very cranky. And so I'll warn my wife, say, Hey, look, these next two weeks, Give me a little slack. I promise I'll make it up to you, but just know if I'm extra cranky, mm -hmm. here's why. And I think being in tune with your body and being able to relate that to your partners as opposed to assuming they know, right, is, is key. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I tell everybody, your kids really don't care how many Ironmans you've done. They just care your mom, your dad. And that's what you got to remember, like, why are you doing everything? Keep in perspective. It doesn't mean you can't mutually pursue both goals, but just always know if you're conflicted, you need to defer towards being a parent over being an elite athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where the corporate athlete struggles, having that wisdom and that sense of control when you start to push that outer limit you you know, which is encroaching on the family or impacting the family to pull it back. Cause you're right. Endurance sport is a highly selfish pursuit. And I think that having the awareness first and then using that awareness to understand the environment and be fully in tune with where you're at, you know, like I know if I'm going to, um, you know, I've got a, maybe a hundred K race or something in three weeks, I start to build up and I know yet yeah, those last two to three weeks, I'm going to be grumpy, you know, and I need to give ample warning to everyone around me. And um, I even try to augment sometimes the run where I'll do it closer. Usually I'm like you, I do it really early, but I find when I do those longer runs, if I can do them closer to when I sleep, there's less grumpy time, <laughs> you know, cause I just, try, I just try to play around with the whole scheduling so I can be the best I can in the environment at home. But no, look, I really appreciate that advice. I think a lot of, a lot of people will take that on board. What I want to do now is jump into some of what I feel were the nuggets in your personal philosophy, right? So I'll just throw some things at you and just maybe you can unpack and dive into it. So the power of mantras, what, what, what's that all about? Well, you know, so a big thing is when you're talking about the power of mantras, like I have a set of maxims I live by. And I believe if you want to be successful in life, you have to be able to write down like, what do you stand for? Right. And so share that with people. And so I put it, it's in my book. It's also in my, website what the fire ignited and when you're faced with decisions in life you got to look at your maxims and say hey is this in alignment or not with these and so it makes things pretty easy like i know when i'm tempted by my buddies hey let's go have a beer tonight i say you know what i can't because one of the things that's important to me is time with my family and my kids so i'm not taken away from that time just to go hang out with buddies right? Uh, I also know that I can never take myself too seriously. If you can't laugh at yourself, life's pretty miserable. And I also know that, you know, we never know what tomorrow holds for, so we can't take things for granted. Uh, but one of the big mantras I love is, 
embrace the suck. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a military term. And what it means is life's hard. It's challenging. If anybody's ever told you life's fair, they lied to you. They did you a major disservice. But once you embrace that it is tough, it is hard, but know that when you get through those challenges, it's so rewarding. You start looking at obstacles as opportunities in disguise. And so that's kind of the key. It's, you know, constantly reminding yourself, hey, embrace the suck. I'll get through this. Don't look at it as, oh, my God, life's coming to an end. Mm-hmm. I'll never get through this. And just on that, that kind of dovetails beautifully into goal distractions. You talked about, I think, is a, you know, again, is, is someone competing at an elite sport level whilst being corporate and running a family you have to be ruthless with your time and the priorities need to be the priorities in your book. You talk about goal distractions, unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. And so sadly, you know, many people don't realize time is our biggest asset, right? And we have very limited amounts of it. And so if you know, you only have 24 hours a day and if you're going to assume you're sleeping seven hours a day of it, what do you do with the other, you know, 17 of that? And you start mapping it out, what it looks like and what you want to get done. And so when people start saying, hey, can you do this? Can you do this? You got to look at, is this in alignment with my goals? Because unfortunately, people aren't always respectful of your time. And so I think the key is you just got to learn how to say no and just tell them, say, listen, I'm sorry, but I can't. I made a bigger commitment to myself and to my family to focus on this. And so it makes it pretty easy to say no to things. I think to be successful, you have to know what you're willing to sacrifice because you can't achieve goals without sacrifice. But on that same vein, know what you're not willing to sacrifice. Like I'm willing to sacrifice TV. I'm willing to sacrifice hanging at a pub, watching a sporting event. I'm not willing to sacrifice family time. I'm not willing to sacrifice being a dad and a husband. And so it gives me a lot of clarity when I'm faced with distractions that I know are going to deter me from achieving my goal. Yeah, it's so well said, man. You talk about top achievers focus on tomorrow, not what they've done or won. Talk about that. Yeah, so I try not to live based on what's been done in the past. You know, so many people I know keep telling stories of what they achieved in high school. Mm -hmm. They peaked in high school. We all know those guys, right? Right. I'm I'm 28 years past that. You know, I'm playing for the end games. I'm jealous of what these 70 year olds are doing. You know, my buddy Jack at 71, we did the, uh, the grand Canyon rim to rim to rim, right? Oh, wow. It's. And so what I did yesterday is great. You know, you can pat yourself on the back for five minutes, but let's focus on what I'm going to do tomorrow. And it's not to say I'm not um, satisfied, but I never want to be complacent, right? Mm -hmm. It's you keep wanting to find out just how far you can push yourself without going too far. But on that same token, it's as a result of getting burned, I realize tomorrow I'm not guaranteed. Right. I mean, something could happen tonight. And so with that, I need to know that if today was my last day with my full mobility, am I happy with what I did today? So before every surgery, you will find me exercising in the hospital room. You'll find me doing push-ups, curls, everything. Because I tell myself when I wake up, if I can't do what I could do before the surgery, I'm okay with it. I didn't squander that time. I just had a torn rotator cuff, torn labrum, torn bicep fixed a year and a half ago. Literally, as we were pulling out of the driveway, I stopped the car, ran back inside, and did 20 more pull-ups. My wife goes, what the hell are you doing? We're going to be late for surgery. And I said, look, I just wanted this one last memory just in case this is the last time I ever do a pull-up. And those are the kind of things I try to always approach life. You know, no matter what it is, if this is your last time doing it, are you okay with it? How, so I'm a, I'm a, I believe in a higher power. I'm, you know, I would consider myself a spiritual person and 
most people that I've talked to that are high performers have a sense of faith or purpose or whatever you want to call it. I know you're a man of God, Shay, and I want to talk about your faith and how through the journey of being a child, you know, probably at some point yelling at God, questioning your faith, you know, your faith gets stronger. How has faith for you evolved over time and how has faith and trust helped with your level of resilience and grit? Yeah, it's for me, it gives you hope. And I think as a kid, even as an adult, that's what we all need. We all just need hope, right? If you don't have hope, life's pretty miserable. And I think, you know, the faith has always provided that assurance that, look, if I just keep doing the right things, things will get better. They may not be perfect. They will never be how they used to be. That doesn't mean it won't be better, right? Like I tell my, you know, with the scars, it's been a challenging life. But I also think it's been pretty freaking amazing. You know, I spoke to my son's fifth grade school today. When I was doing the Zoom, I took my ear off for all the kids. And I asked him, how many of your dads can do this? In right? 20 years, you'll be taking your teeth out too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do all of it. You know, it's, but that's what you got to keep thinking. Like, what are some of these things that I can do that most people can't do that are a result of getting severely burnt? Right. Um, so I don't know. I just, I can't ever feel like where my faith has let me down. I've had my fair share of hardships, but who hasn't, you know, and I don't try to compare and say what I've went through is harder than what you've been through. And I know that no matter what I've been through, somebody else has went through worse. They've not only survived, but they thrived. Mm. Right. And I think that's what you got to just keep things in perspective and realize your faith will never let you down. But when you lose it, like, what else do you have? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, you know, people always say, oh, you know, you believe in fairy tales. I said, look, if you would have seen what I've seen, you would know there is a higher power driving this. There's no other way to explain the things that I've experienced without there being a higher power behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say that your faith is developed into trust like i think you have been knowing right like i think there's that faith yeah. and there's that 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 you know like that that knowing that comes from actual trust and you you exude that and i think rj you know one of the things to keep in mind too it's you know the scientific term is like the confirmation bias like and then also to pair that up with ras reticular activating system it's that like, if you believe in this, like if I'm an optimist and I believe bad things happen for the better, my brain is constantly looking for everyday occurrence to say, what good can become of this, That's right. right? And me personally, all I read are nonfiction books. I don't read fiction. I don't want to read about somebody dying, somebody cheating on their husband. Because I don't want my brain to entertain those kind of thoughts. Me too. That's yeah. not a reality for me. My reality is when something bad happens, I know how to respond. Like I don't default to, oh my gosh, what do I do? <laughs> I default to, we got this shit. It's on. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And you're training your brain to see adversity as an opportunity to grow. And so your brain's always looking at things going around you saying, how does this fit into my mindset? And it finds those things. And if you study about uh, RAS, your brain has a built-in built -in filter. It brings you more of what you want as opposed to what you don't want. You know, one of the examples I like to tell people is, think about when you got your first brand new car. Like you were so excited about it. Like, oh my God, this car is amazing. Nobody's got it. On the way home from the dealership, you saw three of them. And you saw one of those in the parking lot at work. Did all those cars suddenly appear? Did they go out and buy it just because you got it? No. But now it had importance to your brain. So your brain every day is applying the filter and says, all right, where is this 2000 Toyota camera? And it shows you instances in everyday world of it going on. Mm -hmm. 
And the same could be applied to overcoming adversity. Your brain starts looking for everyday occurrences and say, look, here's somebody making do with what they got. Here's mm-hmm. somebody overcoming extreme hardship. And then it brings you those occurrences. Yeah, well said. Totally, I totally agree with that. I want to, I wanna, as, as we get to the, uh, to the end of the show, I want to talk about usually what we do is we, we ask our guests about habits and routines and things that they do in their lives. But I think uh, you had articulated it beautifully in your book with how to ignite your fire today. So what would you say to some of those would-be corporate athletes or, you know, corporate athletes out there today that are in the trenches, they're trying to, you know, kill it in business, you know, be uh, an excellent husband or wife, they're embracing athletics or sports or whatever their form of purposeful suffering is, how um, would you, uh, or what, what advice would you give to them in terms of igniting their fire? Yeah, so I think it's all about having a schedule, being very regimented. For instance, so I get up at 4.30 every single day. And when I get up at 4.30, I make coffee, add an extra shot. I eat two frozen blueberry waffles. I read nonfiction for 30 minutes. And then I fire emails for 15 minutes. And then I start my workout. But one of the things that you realize is in order to get up at 4.30, there's some things that have to happen the night before. I have to lay out my gym clothes. I have to write my workout out on my whiteboard in my pain cave. I have to look at meetings I have coming up for work. What are my commitments? And so there's all these things that kind of contribute to being successful, right? You start time management, uh, being efficient with your time. So you can't just wake up at 4.30, right? Mm -hmm. There's all these things that have to go into that. Then once you start mapping out your week, you start realizing, all right, if this works for just working out, how do I apply this to achieving life goals, right? Like I knew at 43, I wanted to be in the C-suite, you know, in business. And I know statistically the role that you're in at 50 is the role that you retire in. Hmm. And so I started backing in and I said, wait a minute, I'm 43, that's seven years away. I better put a five-year plan in play now if I want to get there before I'm 50. I can't wait till I'm 48 and then try to get there. It's not going to happen. And so to make that happen, I had to quit the most profitable job I've ever had. But by the time I was 46, I was able to hit that goal, you know, of working myself into a, you know, senior leadership role. But it all started from applying the Ironman training being scheduled, regimented, set a task where you want to be three and five years and then backing into that to figure out what do I need to do tomorrow. One of the things that you said in your book, now that you mentioned your schedule, that I totally agree with, and I don't know if it's a result of for, for those of us that train heavily in the morning because you have to be so controlled with your time, but I too like to send emails out before anyone can respond because I like everyone to owe me the feedback, right? I like to push out really early all the work onto everyone around me. Um, and that way I'm in control of my day. And I think that was something that you, you said very well as well, where you kind of, you get that workout, you push those emails out and then you can face your day proactively. Right. So Look, that was a really, really great advice, Shay. I think we'll wrap it up there. For the guests that want to find you, where can they actually find you? They can find me at shayescu.com. They can also go to whatthefireignited.com. Or you can go to my LinkedIn profile, Shayescu. Okay. Hey, there's some kids. You know what? We, our guests, we, we've had Joe DeSena on the show, uh, the founder of Spartan many times. And he, he brings his kids on the show while he's talking, he's walking around, his kids are wrestling there. So it's great. We love to see that. So Shay really enjoyed your time. Enjoyed reading your book. Can you let the guests know the name of your book and where they can find that as well? Absolutely. So the name of the book is what the fire ignited. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can also download the Kindle version or even listen to the Audible version as well. 
All right, brother. Well, look, man, best of uh, luck with your training. It's morning here in Australia. I know it's evening down there, down in the south. So uh, you, you take care, man. Well, thanks so much, my friend. And hopefully we can meet face to face in the near future. Definitely.